and give you a few moments to find your way to the book of Jonah. All right, so we're going to start a new series today through the book of Jonah. We're going to do this in in four weeks. I've been looking forward to this. This is one of my favorite books, really, out of the Bible. It's one of those classic uh, Bible stories, one of the ones that I remember uh, from my childhood. In fact, um, just over this last few weeks as I've been preparing for this, I've been kind of going through the Internet and looking up artwork on Jonah. And one of the things that's, that's interesting to see is how... Uh, graphic and gory and terrifying a lot of the artistry is for this story. I mean, it, it's not just a great Bible story. It's, it's just a classic story. It has danger and, and excitement and monsters and all this kind of stuff um, to it. And a lot of the pictures that you can find reflect that. Um, when I was a kid, when I was probably about oh, four or five, we had a, we had a book called the the Picture Bible for Little Eyes. There's a little, long, rectangular book. I know some of you have it now. Um, and I, it's still vivid in my mind, the kinds of pictures, because a lot of them were very realistic, kind of nicely done. Um, but one of the ones that stuck out especially was the one of Jonah. And if I could just paint this a little bit, I'm going to throw this up line sometime this week. But, but it's this picture, very realistic, kind of photorealistic, of Jonah in the foreground swimming, treading water, and the water's got this kind of clear quality so you can see some of him beneath the surface as well. And probably about 10, 15 feet behind him is this big looming shape that's somewhere between a shark and a killer whale, kind of rounded with a fin on top, with this big yellow eye just eyeballing Jonah. And Jonah looks terrified. It didn't give me nightmares, but something close to it. It stuck with me. It's kind of seared my memory. And when I've shown people after I found it again, uh, they, they understood what I was talking about. Compared to what you see now, you have whales who are smiling and, you know, Jonah's smiling inside the belly of the whale and all that stuff. That's not what this book is. It's, it's actually a bit more gritty, a bit more exciting than that. Um, what I also love about it is that it's surprisingly well-crafted. It doesn't give all the details up front. In fact, it waits until close to the very end of the story to really deliver the punchline of this whole book, which is to say that this isn't really just a history account. This is, this is a story with a point to it. In fact, there's, there's some difference of opinion on this about whether it's actually recounting events that happened in history or whether this is something more like a parable. There was a time where I wasn't quite sure where to come down on it because it's got a very distinct point to it that we will not get to today, but we will see as we go through this over the coming weeks. Also, in the way that it's crafted, it uses language to show as well as tell. And I'll point that out this morning in some of the things that we see there. And I think... Lastly, the reason why I wanted to go through this is that I think that point that it is trying to make is a point that we definitely need to hear today, both, both in general as Christians, but especially for us as a church. And so I, I hope and pray uh, that God will impress that point on our hearts as we go through this book. 
So let's talk a little bit about Jonah before we read this. Jonah's a prophet in Israel, and by Israel at this time, this is in the 8th century BC, we're talking about the northern kingdom. This is after the kingdom of Israel has been split in two following, uh, following Solomon's demise. Uh, Solomon had turned away from God, had served the idols of his various wives, and God had taken the kingdom from him, from David's line, and torn it into two between the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. So Jonah's in the northern kingdom. He's actually from the Galilee region, which is a bit of a, a rarity. His hometown was a little bit to the north of Nazareth, about five, six miles to the north of Nazareth. He lived about 150 years after King Solomon, which puts him somewhere during the same time as the prophet Elisha. Do you remember Elisha is the one who followed the prophet Elijah, uh, the one who took on all the priests and prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he served during the time of King Jeroboam II. If you can see this cross-reference in 2 Kings 14.25. Uh, Jeroboam II was a wicked king, as many of them were during that time. And Jonah appears briefly during that time um, in 2 Kings. This is also one of the books, in terms of where it fits in the Bible, this is one of the books that makes up what is known as the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of them. Um, minor because they're smaller accounts, um, but that includes Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Jonah fits right in the middle of those things. So that's a, a brief intro. We'll say a little bit more as we get into it, but why don't we stand together as we read from Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll get into this. Can't wait. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it from them, for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life 
and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. (coughs) So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord, once more I ask for your blessing on this time in your word, that we would read with open eyes, open ears, and open hearts, that you would speak clearly to us through your word and through your spirit to us, that you would impress upon us um, the significance of this story um, and what it is that you want us to take away from it. Enlighten us, convict us, comfort us all where it's appropriate, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to spend some time walking through this story before we talk about what it means. The story begins with God sending Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment. Nineveh was at that time the capital of what was known as the Assyrian Empire. If you look on the modern maps today, it's somewhere near uh, the town of Mosul, which has been in the news a lot over the last few years because of uh, the growing threat of ISIS. Um, This would put you somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to 800 miles away from Israel, from Jonah, up in the the northeast area. At this time, Assyria was the dominant power in the region. Within a generation, they would come and attack and then conquer Israel and take many of the Israelites into captivity. Um, But they were really the ascendant power, the superpower of their day, and they were known especially for their cruelty in the way they dealt with other people. Um, so, so not the good guys. This was a threat in the region. We see in what God says to Jonah that the wickedness of the city and probably the entire empire had reached its limit with God. Enough was enough. God was going, getting ready to do something about it. And, and, and the way that it's phrased here in this book is very similar to the language that we find back in Genesis 18 with reference to um, the events leading up to Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. We're going down to the city to see whether they are still evil, whether their evil has amounted to something yet. And clearly in the destruction it shows that that threshold had been reached. But Nineveh's time was up as far as God was concerned, and he was sending Jonah to go and speak against it. I want to make a number of quick observations before we move on here about just what we've covered in these first couple verses. First of all, notice that everyone and everything, looking at what we've seen here, it reminds us that everyone, everything on earth takes place under the watchful eye of God. The book of Proverbs 15.3, Scripture says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. This, this book really is a, a testimony or an illustration of God's vast sovereignty over all that he has made, not least of which the earth. There's nowhere in creation, there's nowhere on earth that God is not aware of and involved in. Everything happens under his watchful gaze. He does not miss anything. Another observation is that we see here that God doesn't simply deal with individuals, but also with larger groups. To be sure, he deals with individuals. That's, that's kind of the way we tend to think. 
God deals with me personally about my sin. But, but this is one example of which there are several in which God will also deal with nations, with tribes, with peoples, and a couple points with the whole of the earth. There are times where God will deal with whole groups, whether or not everybody in that group is against him. That's important for us to keep in mind. Third, God holds everyone to a standard, whether they acknowledge him or not. The Ninevites did not know God or fear him, and yet God was going to bring judgment against them because of their wickedness. Standard for them is the standard, same standard for all people. Fourth, there are times when God will leave a people in their wickedness for a while. He doesn't seem to have done anything to restrain them. He's allowed them time to get worse. But we can also see it in some respects as an act of mercy, allowing them time for repentance. We see that thought in Romans chapter 2, that, that God gives mercy, it shows mercy, overlooks offenses in order that people might turn and repent of their sins. But God doesn't always deal at that moment with sin. He oftentimes allows space, and care ought to be taken on how we uh, interpret that, that allowance of time. Lastly, we see that God doesn't always act directly, but uses means to accomplish his purpose. He, he doesn't go to Nineveh himself. He sends a representative, a prophet. He doesn't speak to us directly himself by his bare voice. He speaks to us through his word. It's important for the Ninevites that when Jonah goes to speak to them, that they hear him as if the Lord himself were addressing him. They dare not ignore him. He has the authority of God to speak that message. And if they disregard him, it is the same in God's eyes as if they were to disregard God himself. It's important that they listen to what he has to say, to do what he says. And reminds us of the importance of authority in any age, that God uses different representatives to carry out his purposes, he uses churches, uses pastors um, to, to express himself, to declare himself to the world. We're to be careful to re recognize and, and listen to those things that he sets up. So that's the beginning. That sort of sets the, the stage for what happens next. God sends Jonah, but Jonah disobeys. It's surprising in Scripture because that's not normally what we find among prophets. Prophets are specially set apart by God. They have a special status in the people, among the people of Israel. It's an honored position in some respects. Although, on the other hand, most of the prophets also tended to end prematurely. Uh, they would be killed oftentimes. Jonah's one who, though he is charged with this great responsibility, this in many respects an honorable task, disobeys. And the way that his disobedience is described, uh, you, can, you, you just hear the emphasis on Jonah doing the exact opposite of what God commands. Instead of going to the northeast, to Nineveh, he heads down to Joppa, which is probably modern-day Jaffa, or well, modern-day is still a ruin, down near Tel Aviv, which is in the southwest direction. 
and then hops on a boat to take it to Tarshish, which many believe is over in Spain, kind of the southern part of Spain, over 2,000 miles away to the west. In every respect, he's going the opposite direction. Even in the language that is used to describe this, God tells Jonah to arise, go up to Nineveh, but in three separate, at least three different occasions, Jonah said to have gone down. Go up here, Jonah goes down. In every respect, Jonah is, completely do, is doing the complete opposite of what is commanded. But he was doing more than just disobeying. A couple times here in, in these verses, it said that Jonah was seeking to leave the presence of God. That's, that's a strange phrase, because Jonah, you would think, would know better. You would think that Jonah would agree with the writer of Psalms, who says in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your hand will hold me fast. There was an understanding within Israel that God is not a deity you can escape. And yet it seems that in this case, Jonah, if he didn't believe that, at least he wanted to believe otherwise. He wanted to believe something more like what the pagans believed, that gods were localized, there was gods of regions. And maybe in getting away from Israel, he would get away from Israel's God. So he's not only leaving God, he's leaving his land, he's leaving his people, and implicit really in all that he's doing, he's, he's also seeming to renounce his, his title of prophet. I'm done. I don't want to do this. I want to get away. And, and there seems to be a, an implicit hope in what he's doing that, that somehow God wouldn't bother him. He'd find someone else to do the job. We don't know at this point why he does this. The writer, writer holds that fact tightly in his hand until a bit later on, really until the third and fourth chapter of, of the book. Why would someone disobey God? What, what would make him do that? I mean, if we could get into his mind without skipping ahead, without getting the answer before we get there, what, what would do that? What would make him want to do that? Was he afraid? I mean, consider the greatness of the people of Assyria. You consider their, their cruelty. That seems to make the most sense, doesn't it? To go in and say, God's going to judge. The God of Israel is going to judge your people. It's probably not going to end well for you. So maybe, maybe that's a possibility. But, but what else might it be? We're not really sure. All we know is that he went down, got onto a ship. Not only got onto the ship, but went out into the bowels of the ship and fell sound asleep. Which is also interesting, because either he is tremendously exhausted from his journey, or, or maybe he, he sleeps with some sort of false confidence that he's somehow gotten away with it. In fact, in fact say a little bit more about how soundly he was sleeping in a little bit. But it's a strange picture. This is not your typical story of a prophet. It's not a story of triumph, of God working through him. This is, a, this is actually turning out quite badly for Jonah right off the bat. This is a, this is a prophet gone wrong. And while Jonah's sleeping in the ship, maybe assuming that he had gotten away or was in the process of getting away from God, 
God comes after Jonah. Um, when, I, when I was in oh, junior high, high school age, uh, we used to go to a family camp over on Woodby Island each summer. And one of the highlights of that camp each year was really not on the official schedule. Um, don't tell anybody this, okay? What I'm about to tell you. We used to sneak up onto Camp Casey after hours, or Fort Casey. You know, Fort Casey has the big gun emplacements, all these concrete bunkers, uh, the switchboard. It's this really cool, incredibly dark room. We would go up there, and we would run around in, in the middle of the night, which, of course, the park was closed. You're not supposed to do that. Um, some of us, not, not me, even brought fireworks up there, and, and one genius uh, decided to light them off outside the ranger's uh, house. So we sort of made our way into the fort, thinking we had gone away, gotten away with it until we saw the headlights. And, and there's a unique sensation that, that goes with being chased. Right? It's kind of the thrill, terror, all that stuff bundled up. The ranger came after us, and we managed to bail off the cliff down to the beach and get back safely. But, but others weren't so lucky. But that, that sense of being chased, of this isn't, you're not going to get away with this, it is what we should see as this story unfolds. Jonah thinks he's saved. Jonah thinks he's gotten away with it. And here come the footsteps of God in the shape of a tremendous storm. And, and we're, it's repeated through this story, through this chapter, how intense the storm was. Um, it's strong enough to terrify the crew. We're, we're assuming that this is a crew that is used to sailing, that knows what it's doing, that knows how to handle things at sea. And they're terrified. They're looking at a storm that threatens to tear this ship apart. Um, even to the point where it's not long before, not only are they turning to their gods for help and deliverance in this, but they start throwing cargo overboard. This is not, this is not you know, they're throwing TVs and you know, extra food. This is their livelihood that they're willing to jettison and sacrifice because their lives are at stake. Things are really serious. We're not close to the shore. We're not going to make it. This is, this is the last desperate attempts to save their lives. This is a serious storm. Right, that's the beginning of it. And it's during this time they discover that Jonah is sleeping. Now, now there's a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the way that it's written in the Greek, it mentions not that Jonah was asleep, but that Jonah was snoring. Painting the picture that it was because of Jonah's loud snoring that they discovered him. What are you doing here? Do you not understand what we're in? Wake up. Call out on your God. Lend a hand. This is no time to sleep. So, so deep is his sleep. So they rouse Jonah, he gets up, no mention of whether he prayed or not. I, I think it's doubtful that he did. But it's at this time that the crew begins to suspect that this is no ordinary storm, but an act of divine judgment. Now, in, in the Mediterranean, there's seasons as far as sailing goes. There are times of the year where you didn't sail because of storms, because of this exact problem. The fact that they are out there suggests that this is probably out of season. This is an unusual storm. For one thing, but also judging from the severity of the storm, they are beginning to put together, this is not just something that happened. This is not a high pressure, low pressure 
confluence. This, there's some divine agency behind this. What's going on here? And so they do what many did in that time. They cast lots. This was the way that you found out these things. This is the way that you tapped into what was going on in the spiritual world. If you cast lots, the, the, the spiritual powers that be will give you an answer through these things. And lots, coincidentally or not, falls to Jonah. Here's the problem. And they barrage him with questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? And I want you to notice how Jonah responds. Not, not just in what he says, because there's some interesting things to note there. First, he says, I'm a Hebrew, which is the way that, they, that people from Israel generally identify themselves. But then he says, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The, the, the irony there is thick, isn't it? If you fear the Lord, why are you here, Jonah? You can imagine people receiving this book or hearing this book. Come on. Who's this clown? Who does he think he is? But, but what strikes me, and this is why I encourage you to read out loud whenever you can, is that reading this out loud, he doesn't sound in any way agitated or excited. He sounds very matter-of-fact to me. Resigned, maybe. I don't know. But, but, but very... Composed, a bit shameless. He's acknowledging that I fear the Lord, but, but no awareness seemingly of the irony in what he's saying himself. Maybe even a bit of contempt towards those around him. I am a prophet of God still. Whatever else I may be, I'm better than these pagans. But, but, but Jonah's level response to me is interesting, given the circumstances. This is a matter of life and death, and Jonah is giving a measured response. Contrast that with the crew. When they hear his response, they, they react with a fresh wave of terror. What have you done? What's going on? Maybe, maybe they're thinking, Jonah just mentioned that my God is the God who made the sea. Oh, great. It's, your, it's him. We're really in trouble. He, this God is going to get us. And then it's at this point that the author gives us another little tidbit of news that we didn't know before. It's that Jonah had already told him about what he was doing. I'm trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. It seems at that time there's like, okay, whatever. Welcome aboard. As long as you pay, we're good. Now that news means something entirely different. What did you do? What's going on here? How do we get out of this situation? To make matters worse, the writer says, the storm continued to intensify. Not only discovering this makes things better, it actually makes things worse. What do we do? And Jonah's answer is not helpful either. Throw me overboard. Great, so we've got this storm because of you. Now you want us to kill you. That, that's going to come back on us. And so rather than obeying him, they tried to row back to shore, however far away from shore they were. But again, as they do so, the storm intensifies once again. It went from a storm that threatened to tear the ship apart to who knows what now. Have you ever been in a storm at sea? That's when things get out of hand on the water, you start realizing how small you are. Um, I remember one time we were on a, a cruise ship up to Alaska. It's like tipping over a skyscraper and just plowing through the water. It's not really sailing, if 
for those of you who sailed. It's kind of embarrassing to mention that one on a cruise ship because you just, mm, you just, nothing. Buffet tables and no motion. Until we, we went outside Vancouver Island and we hit some pretty good rollers out there. Enough where stuff was banging around quite a bit. Um, and went outside, and it was at that moment that it started dawning on me, even though this wasn't serious, um, the ocean's far bigger than this ship. This ship could disappear without so much as a ripple if you're looking at things from space. The level of the ocean wouldn't rise hardly at all. It would just swallow us up. Uh, if you've ever seen video, in fact, if you want, you want to really freak yourself out, Go online and look at videos of giant waves and ships have gone through them. When you think of a wave 30 to 100 feet high from trough to tip and ships going through that, it's terrifying. These guys were not in a cruise ship. These guys were likely in a very small, maybe under 100 foot long ship. And things were intensifying, getting worse. You could see, you could hear the creaking. You could see things swinging wildly from side to side, water coming over the side, the wind whistling. The water just stirred up in all directions. What are we going to do? Scared out of their wits. When they saw they were getting nowhere with this, they take Jonah, they pray to God that he would not hold this against them, and they toss him over the side. The storm immediately stops, ceases, calms down. Now, this is, this is the second time in Scripture, first chronologically, where we, we have an account of a storm stopping, and the response is not relief, but fear. Now, we would think if the storm stops, that's good, aces, we like this. But, but I think it's because we look at this from a distance. If we're on that boat... If we pray to a God, or if, if the one that we're traveling with is the one who gets up and says, knock it off, we're assuming that we're going to be up there patting his back, or yay, yay God. It's a God moment. R rather than realizing that there's power in stopping something, just as much as there is in starting something. It's an unsettling kind of power. This time, it was directed towards our good, but what if... What if we cross his path? This is, a, this is a good moment, but a potentially dangerous God we're dealing with. They're terrified, and the response is to make an offering to God, but also it says that they made vows, which, which typically meant that they were going, that they were promising to continue making sacrifices to God in the future. This is a bit like what we read of at times um, of what we call foxhole conversions. People are so terrified of the moment, God, if you bring me out of this, I will, I will devote my life to you forever. Uh, it's the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was in a great storm and a tree had struck right near where he was walking along the road. And so terrified of me, he cried out, if you, if you rescue me from this, if you bring me safely home, I will devote myself to the monastery. I'll join the monastery. Such was his terror, and he was spared, and he kept his word. What, what's interesting to think about is what that means for them. Did they, 
become Christians at that point? Certainly, if God didn't replace their other gods, he, he was added to their pantheon. It was definitely an event that left a lasting impression on them. They, they feared God, the God of Israel, in a way that they hadn't before. Um, what's interesting as well is all in spite of Jonah, the unfaithful prophet. So the scene shifts from them back to Jonah. It's kind of funny because you think about it. They've tossed Jonah in the water. Jonah's left to kind of sit there for a little bit while he talks about what's happening to the crew. Meanwhile, back to Jonah now. Jonah's in the water. And Jonah seems at this point resigned to fate. I'm going to die. Maybe he saw this as an out. Maybe he saw this, whatever, whatever he was running from, he saw this as the, the period at the end of the sentence for him. If I die, if I drown, not excited about it, but at least then I won't have to worry about God anymore. And God frustrates that by sending a fish or a whale, sea creature of some sort, to swallow him and holds him for three days and three nights. Now, the good news is that Jonah is saved from drowning. I, I think that's, that's good news, however you want to slice it. The ominous news is that God's not done with Jonah, even though Jonah may have been done with God. And we'll look at what happens uh, in the next chapter next week. So, so what do we do with this chapter? What do we see here? I think, first of all, it's worth reflecting on this picture that we're given of God. This is not a God who's far off, not, not the God of the deists who, who kind of made things, set it in motion, and left us to our own. Now, we may agree with what I've just said, but how many of us actually live like God is like this? How many of us actually pray like God is involved in the world, that God knows, that God cares, that God is watching? This is meant to us to remind us of that. That God is very much attuned to what is happening, that God very much is invested, that God sees and is making determinations and is preparing actions against what he sees happening in the world that he's made. That he can direct storms. That he can direct animals. That all creation is subject to him. Do we, do we consider that God? Do we consider that God as we pray? Does that, does that humble us? Does it remind us of the words of the psalmist? And psalmate, what is man that you're mindful of us? Because this reminds us again of this terrific power. This awesome ability of God to do whatever he wants in creation, whether it fits into our rules of physics or not. Whether it fits into our experience or not. It, it does not trouble God to do things that we think are impossible because this is his creation and not ours. Do we think that way? Do we pray that way? Do we, do we pray with any sort of hope that God can do anything that we ask? James, James writes in chapter 1 that, that if we lack wisdom, we're to ask God and we're to ask God and not doubt. It's funny that he would say that there because I, I think he recognizes then 
as now, Christians struggle with doubt when they pray that God can't do or God won't do what he says he will do. Read Jonah again. God absolutely can do whatever he wants. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing's beyond his power. Now, now you know, let, let, not going in this, the realm of the silly, you know, I don't expect you to go down to the bay and say, God, I want you to bring a whale to swallow me. But let's be more serious about this. Can God change hearts? Yes. Can God turn hardened hearts into soft hearts? Can God bring people out of sin? Can God forgive? Yes. Absolutely. That's our hope. Can, can God bring us through trials? Yes. Can God give us strength? Can God give us boldness to, to live faithfully for him in this world? Yes. Those aren't hard for him. He's not exerting himself unnecessarily to do that. That is well within his range. And we ought to pray that way. So consider that picture of God's sovereignty. And that's, that's not the only pictures that we're going to see of this. But the, but the other thing I, I think that's important for us to consider today is the question that just lies underneath this whole chapter. And that question is, are you running from God? I think there's a sense in which all of us at one time or another are guilty of this. There are three, there are three ways in particular that I have seen Christians run from God. First are those who run from accountability because they are caught up in sin. It's easier to run than confess. It's easier to run than to fight. It's easier to fear God's wrath than to trust his forgiveness in Christ. Are you running from God right now? Another way in which people run, typically or, or commonly, is when we are out of fellowship with each other. When we have sinned against each other or someone has sinned against us or we've just been offended in some way or offended somebody. We've talked about, I've talked about this recently, but, but I, I think it's a point that needs emphasizing. We, we are, as Christians, to be people that forgive liberally and abundantly. We're to be people who acknowledge our faults and our sins to each other and ask for forgiveness. What we have become, generally speaking, is a people who don't deal with those conflicts, but instead run from them. God commands us to forgive. In fact, he sets that, in Jesus' words, he sets that as a higher priority than worshiping God. If you come to offer your sacrifice and your brother has something against you, set your sacrifice aside and go make things right with that person first. Then come and offer your sacrifice. But instead, many Christians choose to run. We run from those relationships. We run to other churches or we run from the church altogether. We don't want to face the music. We don't want to answer questions. We don't want to admit our pride. And so we run. Are you running 
from the command of God to reconcile, to be reconciled with your brother, with your sister. Third, Christians tend to run when God commands us to go and tell others about Christ. I don't know what to say. I don't know how they will react. I'm afraid of what will happen if I open my mouth. And so rather than obeying the words of God, the words of Christ, go, therefore, into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. I'm with you. Go. And we run. Are you running from God? Do you think, as you run, that you will escape him? That's a bit of the madness of sin. Is that one, you can tell one of the telltale signs of sin is that you think you can get away with it. That God will get tired of chasing. You can run. You can find a place where he won't bother him. Or he'll just say, fine, if you don't want to go share the gospel with, with these people that I've called you to, I'll find somebody else to do it. And it's true that he may, but don't mistake that for him leaving you alone. Don't, don't think that he will give up on you because you are hopelessly caught up in a sin. Don't think he will get up on you because, give up on you because enough time has passed and there's no way to reconcile that relationship with each other. Do not be deceived. You cannot, you will not escape him. You cannot run away. My encouragement to you is to stop running. To return. Uh, underlying that desire to run is an implicit statement that what God calls us to is not good. You see that in what Jonah does? God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Now, now what do we know about God? God is many things, but, but one of those attributes that we're told again and again in Scripture is that God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. So he does not demand things or command things that are wrong or immoral or unjust, or beneficial for his people. He, he acts in a way that we ought to affirm and recognize, and will affirm and recognize, as good. To have God command and us to say, I won't, is to declare that we don't believe that God is good. God says, confess your sins, come to him. We say, I will not, because confession is not good. That's a lie. God says, be reconciled to each other. That is good. And we say, it's not. That's a lie. God says, preach the gospel to your neighbors. That's good. That's good for you. That's good for your neighbors. And we say, no. It's not good. My reputation's at stake. We're lying about God. Repent of your unbelief. Give up your flight and return to God. Confess what you have done. Confess who you are. Submit yourself to him again. Stop running. You will find that, that in coming back to God, 
you will not only see the goodness of his grace and his mercy, as we're reminded about in the confession, grace and peace to you from God the Father. That's the promise. That's the hope. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have every encouragement in Scripture to stop running, to come back to God. There's no reason to keep on running. It is to your destruction. What you should really worry about is if you find yourself in this position where you are running and God leaves you alone, does nothing. That is not a sign of his approval. That is a sign of his judgment. God disciplines the ones whom he loves. If he does not discipline you, you are not his sons. You are illegitimate. It's in Hebrews 12. We want God, we should want God to come after us. We should want God to pursue us, to run us down. Because what we are doing is to our own destruction. And God is actually acting not just out of a sense of righteousness and justice, but love. Stop running. Turn to him. Or maybe you don't believe in God. I don't know if there's anybody that fits that category here today. But if you wrestle with this whole idea of God, maybe, maybe you find it hard to believe in him. I hope you see in this passage that, that whether or not you believe in God is really irrelevant in the end. And for us as Christians, we should hear that same message. Because this, this is meant for those that we are sent to preach the gospel to. Unbelief does not stay God's judgment on them. Unbelief is the reason why God will judge them in the end. There will be no one that escapes God's judgment in the end. Do we believe that? If we believe that, we will fear for the sake of those who do not know God. Right? If we know what's coming, if we know what God will do, if we're looking at Scripture and see how God has judged people before, if we see the warnings that not are just placed in Scripture alone, but even in the mouth of Jesus himself, we do not fear for them, I don't think we understand the gospel. We should fear that this world will face God in his wrath one day, that they will not escape no matter what they convince themselves of. And we should preach that message and point them to Christ. Or if that's you here today, we want to encourage you the way out of this situation that you find yourself in, a wrathful God against you because you have turned from him, that you have neglected him, you have rejected him, is to turn to the one that he has offered for our forgiveness. That's Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. What is a, a fascinating and sobering story that we have read so far. Lord, search our hearts. We, we are capable of preaching to ourselves many versions of the truth that mask the real truth. We may convince ourselves that we are not running, or in actuality, that's exactly what we're doing. 
Maybe not defiantly and openly like Jonah, but through half commitments, through lip service, through, through negotiating obedience, obeying here while being disobedient in other places, trying to pay off our sins by good deeds. Lord, show us if we are running from you and bring us back. Or that, that our, our fear of you would be replaced by a desire to be forgiven by you. That, that the way that we see you as bad, not good, would be replaced by an understanding that you are, you are entirely for our good. That to be brought into the light in order to be forgiven is the best thing for us that we can desire. Draw us to yourself. Remind us once again of the promises of mercy and grace for those who turn to you, that we might be encouraged once again. And Lord, may we look at, at this passage and tremble for the world that does not know you. Tremble for them, for what they will face, and tremble for ourselves, for our neglect. Or that you would, you, you would stir in us, you would spark in us, a greater concern for those who don't know you. They are perishing apart from you. Yet you have sent us with a message of good news by which they can be saved. Lord, send us out with boldness and with a purpose to make you known that they might be saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, who taught us to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. May I have the service come up, please.